The following is a recording of a global affairs session at the Max Bell and features Dr. Bonnie Henry, Provincial Health Officer for British Columbia. In this episode, Dr. Henry talks about the challenges she faced in her public health leadership role during the COVID-19 pandemic and takes questions from students and staff following her talk. Please welcome Dr. Bonnie Henry. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's slightly intimidating <laughs> to be in front of you today. But wonderful to see so many faces in, in for real. <laughs> um, I'm going to talk all about some boring stuff about policy and things. <laughs> no, actually, today I'm going to start by, um, as the way we do in my office all the time, um, by acknowledging how grateful I am to be here on Tianu. Uh, First Nation lands as a white settler from uh, the traditional homeland of the Mi'kmaq people on the east coast of Canada, I recognize that I have been privileged and experienced um, a lot of privilege from these lands and that this has come at the expense of the traditional keepers of the Mi'kmaq country and here in British Columbia. The work in my office, we're doing a lot of work uh, on understanding this truth and unlearning some of the ways that we have of putting in place barriers for First Nations, Métis and Inuit people in this country. And part of this is working to demonstrate my or our trustworthiness as we walk a path together towards true reconciliation. In that spirit, I want to acknowledge the elders, mentors and teachers who've taught me lessons as we walk this walk together and recognize inherent rights rooted in connection to lands and waters, and I hope you're learning about that, that have never been ceded, and generations of Indigenous rights holders who are First Nations, Métis and Inuit from elsewhere in what we call Canada, who call these lands home now too. So I am very grateful to be here today as well to talk to you, and I was um, approached by an old friend and colleague, Ty, who was my captain when I was in the Navy in my former life. I was a, a, a physician in the military and we went to sea together a number of times. So he uh, coerced me to come here today to talk to you and wanted to talk about leadership. And, you know, I've learned a great deal about myself as a, as a physician, as a leader in a very complex world of healthcare in the last little while. But I've decided that um, I, to talk about leadership, what I'm going to talk about today is joy. As this global storm overtook us, as you mentioned, I became the face and the voice of the BC response to this pandemic. And it has challenged me and all of us in ways we have never thought possible. But I also believe it has brought out some of the worst, but more often the best in our human nature. And that's what I want to focus on today. It's said that adversity introduces us to ourselves. And here, I believe we found that we are generous and kind, resourceful and brave. And so I'd like to take a wee journey through this past almost three years now with thoughts of joy. So what is joy? Joy is often defined as to experience great pleasure or delight, a state of happiness, felicity, bliss. In the dictionary, it actually says warm fuzzies. 
he can explain what that is to those who don't understand. Um, as a verb, it's to experience great pleasure or delight. William Blake, this poet, said, it's to be able to see the world in a grain of sand, in heaven in a wild flower. And what is the difference between joy and happiness? I think joy is a less common feeling than happiness. Both are emotions where we have feelings of contentment or satisfaction, but they differ based on the reasons that caused the feelings and the nature of the feeling. Happiness is something internal, something within us, about us, where joy is more external, about others, about service, about the world, about the awareness of the preciousness of something that we are experiencing. And as we've been through this last three years, and I'm sure many of you have experienced this too, we have all suffered, but some more than others. We are all in this global storm still, unfortunately, but we're not all in the same boat. And the Dalai Lama talks about how the suffering is what makes us appreciate the joy. So I'm going to start by playing a few sounds. See if you can figure out what this is. Anybody know what that is? Yeah, exactly. That's the, the sound of children playing. It reminds me of the joys of travel in the before times. That was a recording I took in this little video. I was sitting outside a school in Hanoi, Vietnam, and the kids were, were laughing and running around, and it just struck me how joyful that sound is and how that sound is the same everywhere in the world. When children are playing and laughing, it sounds the same. So it reminded me of the joy of travel because travel is about connectedness and human experience and children playing is a universal sound of joy. And when the pandemic hit, I knew from my past experience that we would be in it for the long haul, though I probably didn't realize it was gonna be this long. When we face the unknown with all of that fear and anxiety before we had the possibility of vaccines and we, we saw what was happening in communities around the world and we think back and what was happening in China and we may not have even been aware of it when it first started. And then we saw the communities in Italy, in New York City, where hospitals were overwhelmed and people were really sick. And we saw that as a global community, our world slowed down. And for the first time, for many of us, we heard the world in a new way. This is the sound that many of us heard for the first time. That was actually sounds of birds outside my house. And many people in my community, I live, I live in the city. You guys are probably not strangers to those sounds out here. <laughs> but a lot of people didn't hear those. We needed to hear the world in a new way. We slowed down. There was silence. It reminded us of our connectedness to the global community because what happened in China was affecting us. But it also led us to see the world in more detail in a way many people had never seen before. 
and a, a great environmentalist, Rachel Carson, who wrote a book uh, called Silent Spring, she said, most of us walk unseeing through the world, unaware alike of its beauties, its wonders, and the tragic intensity of the lives being lived about us. When we slow down, we recognize that there were people that we may not have even noticed in our communities who were essential for us, whether it was grocery store workers or garbage collectors, educators, missing the joy of gathering together, coming here, and how much that was interfered with. Remembering the joy of our close family, though. Remembering to go outside, that's something we did here a lot. I said, go outside and play, find that joy every day. For some, it was a welcome reprieve to actually be close to your family and be together and not have all the busyness of the world all the time. But for many others, it was a massive challenge from the very beginning. The impact on young people, and I don't need to say that in this room, I know all of you were impacted. School was changed, um, remote learning worked for some people, not for a lot. Missing those important connections and socializing and the, the, the important ceremonies that mark these transitions in our lives, those are really important and we miss those. We also know that we had an increase in substance use, interpersonal violence, food insecurity, women, low-income people, people who were racialized, indigenous peoples, suffered disproportionately more, both from COVID, from the virus itself, but also from the measures that we put in place. I think the pandemic exposed these inequities that existed before the pandemic even began. And we also saw that the response brought out the worst, but as I also said, the best in people. We found the recognition of the heroism of people like healthcare workers, for example. And you might have heard some of this, maybe not out here, but this was... This was the seven o'clock cheer in the West End in Vancouver from my hotel room when I was over there one afternoon or one evening. So we needed to go out and find joy every day. But we also saw people who this um, changes in this fear led to anxiety, wanting to control everything, prevention, hiding away, avoidance, denial, flight, our flight and fright actions were triggered. People wanted to escape, <laughs> me included, until I realized, you know, there's no place they're going to let me go for the next little while. We can't travel. We had blaming and scapegoating. We had stigma. We had racism, anti-Asian racism in our communities here. But we also very much had altruism, that sense of collective support and common experience. And, and as I mentioned, I'm from the far, far east of Canada, from Prince Edward Island. And where we come from, we have a, a saying that says, common suffering builds strong bonds. And we need to remember that because we did all go through some degree of suffering together. Then in late December of 2020, finally, vaccines arrived. And that was a miracle. That was joy. But in 2021, as we went into that year, there was not enough vaccines. We couldn't get them fast enough. We couldn't get them everywhere in the world where we needed them. And that meant that we were all still at risk. But we could, we could protect our seniors and elders and people who had those underlying illnesses that made them more at risk. 
and leadership mattered in that situation. Making sure that we had all the best information about who was highest risk. And we had, I had to make those decisions of who got vaccine first when we had a limited supply. Very challenging decisions to make when you had a limited supply of a, a really critical, um, a critical resource. We made difficult decisions with the best information that we had, but it wasn't perfect, and that was a challenge too. We changed the interval here in BC between dose one and do dose two to, to four months so that we could get more people with that extra protection from the first dose before we had the perfect protection, or the better protection from two doses. And then twists and turns hit us. We ended up with more transmissible variants, and we all learned the, the Greek alphabet. I mean, leave it to the WHO to simplify things by using the Greek alphabet, right? <laughs> but we all knew, we heard about alpha and then delta, and then more transmissible variants again. Um, we also had the impacts of us being separated from each other, not traveling, not having, having our bubble, not being able to be together in groups. We had ennui and fatigue and loneliness, wanting it to be over, wanting things to be different. And our resiliency was tested. And that's the part where I called it vaccine hope, but pandemic reality hit us. And we were in the middle of hard. And Winston Churchill says, in the middle, everything looks like failure. It was a really distressing time. In the summer of 2021 and into the fall, again, we wanted the virus not to be spreading again in our hospitals. We wanted people not to be overwhelming our ICUs. And those moments of joy were needed more than ever. And I look back to, think back to one of the times that was an important one for me. Oh, God, just lost my file. Let me find this again. This is the problem when you talk with your hands and you uh, hit the wrong thing. <laughs> ah! Okay. I don't know how to do this. Ah! Locations. All right, is there anybody here who knows how to use an iPhone? <laughs> ah, here we go, got it. So here, this is a, a sound that brought me some joy. Some of you may recognize this type of drumming. So this was, uh, the, that was the grandmother song, although I think I'm much too young to be a grandmother, that, that we did in, in Prince George. And we finally got to travel. And I went up to Prince George in the north here in British Columbia to meet with my team that I hadn't seen for the, in over a year, even though we talked like almost every day. And it was just to see each other again in person was just so joyous. I burst into tears. And one of the people that we were working with up there, he, did, he, was a, he is a First Nations drummer and he went to the long-term care home where they had an outbreak and every day in the courtyard in the long-term care home he and his friends did it drumming and songs to keep the spirits of the elders 
And that's when we persevered and we went back to the essential elements of humankind, of connection, compassion, and community. And we may have been back, but it was in no way yet normal. But kindness became so much more important there. It was part of our daily life, our superpower, even though there was still fear and anxiety. And this was the time when I talked a lot about in the media about science in action, because people were concerned that every time we made a change, it meant that we were wrong. And, and we had to think that science is not a single line. It's not straight and immutable. It changes as we know more, as we learn more. We need to do more and do things differently. And change was a source and continues to be a source of both hope and fear, changing advice as evidence change. So we need to remember that. And I hope you will remember that as you move into your next careers. But we need to remember this sense of joy and relief at our immunization clinics, where some of my colleagues who worked in ICUs, they would volunteer for shifts in the, the vaccine clinics to lift their spirits after long days of seeing the sadness and suffering. And slowly, slowly, we lifted restrictions. We became more focused on regional things. And that joy of seeing people again was slightly terrifying, and it still is in some ways. But it was so, so important, and we recognized how we much we missed it. And then I was able to, to experience this. And I'm not much of a churchgoer, but this was a choir in a church, and they were distanced from each other and wearing masks, but it was so beautiful to hear live music. And I recognized how much I had missed that. And we had gone a whole year, a year and a half at that point, without being able to have those things in our lives, the joy of music, remembering that we had heard differently, that we had heard silence, and remembering that we were missing these things. But we can also realize we can choose how to hear. We're starting to emerge from this pandemic. It's not over, but it's at a place where we now have to, um, we have to remember what we heard, what we listened to, and choose how we're moving forward from here. So if you think about what we faced here in British Columbia, not just the pandemic, but last summer we had things like heat domes and atmospheric rivers and catastrophic flooding and wildfires, and it sometimes seems so overwhelming. But again, we go back to that adversity and that it introduces us to ourselves. And we were generous and kind and resourceful and brave. And now as we emerge from this turn, with this, from this storm, we have to remember that our journeys in the last three years have all been different. We have witnessed each other's suffering. And at one level, we will all have this common bond, but we do not know everybody's story. For many, there was fraught relationships at home. Many people lost a loved one during a time where they were in isolation, where they couldn't come together to celebrate that life not being able to bear witness to those important life events like graduations and weddings and the birth of a grandchild and deep community tragedies and we had some of those here in british columbia at the tukemnips first nation with the horrific legacy of residential schools 
and the unmarked graves of children who did not return home. And in our world now, we have war as well. But these are not things that are I want you to listen to this one final sound. Then we'll toss it. Okay. <laughs> Do everybody know what that is? One of the other joyous things that happened. We have pandemic babies. Some people in my office have pandemic puppies, but this was a pandemic baby. And my my colleague recorded the first time that her child, her newborn, met, uh, well, was almost uh, nine months old then, met his grandparents for the first time. So all they know is the pandemic. Who will these children be who've emerged at this time? Who will all of us be? We can choose to remember the joyful moments that got us through this last few years. That doesn't mean to ignore or forget what we have seen and experienced. The inequities, the suffering that's in, in our global community as well as our community here at home. But to emerge from fear and anxiety and uncertainty to wisdom and caring and compassion those are the things that we can take with us from what we've been through together. That's your challenge, our challenge, to harness the compassion and resilience we have witnessed to address these injustices and inequities that have been exposed. It's not that they were created. They were there before, but they've been exposed. And now we have a duty to do something about that. We can choose not to go back walking unseeing through the world and to find those joy in every day, to be aware of the preciousness of the things that we have in our life. As we continue to move out of this pandemic and return to a life, the, the next normal, we call it, <laughs> maybe not the new normal, we must be patient. We need to be patient with ourselves and with each other. We all need time to adjust and to process the things that we have been through but the words be kind, be calm, be safe are more important than ever. And my, my uh, challenge to you is to replace this relentless uncertainty that we've been through together with unrelenting kindness as we move out of this. And that's how we're going to change the world that we live in. So thank you. I'm happy to take questions. I'm going to take my glasses off now, sorry. <laughs> and I think there's some people okay. with microphones in the room. And yeah. we can so talk uh, now we will move uh, on in the question period. If you have a question, please raise your hand and start with your name and your country. We'll be passing the mic in order.
Hi, um, my name is Emily and I'm from Alberta. Hello. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Lucky you. <laughs> yeah. Um, Welcome to BC. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So, I have a couple of questions. Okay, my first, I'll just ask one. Um, I think a lot of people, including myself here, are looking to go into healthcare. Um, I'm looking at nursing specifically, but I know a lot of people at the school want to be doctors. And it really scares me the like way I've seen um, like mental health and like just a, like a, like lack of like healthcare providers. And I'm nervous about going into a field where people aren't happy. <laughs> and I, I noticed that you were talking about joy today, and I just that scares me when I see that on the news. So yeah. you know, I, I think I mean I love medicine. I love being a doctor. I love the work that I do. And it's challenging and hard. And it's been hard. I mean, all of us have had challenges this last three years. Some days I lie in bed and think, oh my gosh, how am I going to get up again and stand in front of a microphone? But I think in, in medicine, in all parts of what we do as a healthcare worker, we have each other. And we don't hear that a lot. We don't hear about the teams working together. You know, I talked to my colleagues in ICU. Later this week, I'm going to be talking to the nurses and nurse practitioners. You know, we do have strong bonds together working in healthcare. What we hear is when things go wrong. And yeah, there's lots of th challenges to our system. There's lots of things that we need to do better. Um, we have a very fragmented system for supporting people who have mental health issues and, and particular substance use. And we've seen that as the other emergency that we are continuing to deal with here in British Columbia and across this country and, and in some other parts of the globe as well, where we have tragic numbers of people dying from the toxic drug supply. And how challenging it is. And sometimes we think that things will never change and will never get better, but it's because it happens sometimes in increments. And this, I believe, we're in a place right now where things are changing in a positive direction faster than they ever have before. So in, in my world, I say, you know, in public health in particular, you have to have perseverance and patience. And that's what can change things over time. Um, so I wouldn't be discouraged. I think being a healthcare worker is a wonderful profession. It's fantastic. And you have to go into it with the right reasons, and then you can find the right place that you need to be. It took me a long time to figure out that I need to be a public health physician and that working with uh, you know, infectious diseases and outbreak management is something that I can do and I can do. I really love it and I'm passionate about it and making decisions with imperfect information is something that is really challenging and scary and but having the, the ethical underpinnings of why you're doing things and being able to reason through what is the best way course of action that's a that's a skill that we develop and you develop it um, by going through and listening to mentors and and being exposed to experiences like this so i would encourage everybody whether it's nursing or whether it's a physiotherapist whether you want to be a um, we have public health nurses, nurses of all kinds of varieties. This is a very rewarding profession. It's challenging, but you always have somebody there with you to support you. And don't be too intimidated by what you hear. 
the negative sides of it. People are tired right now, and that's, uh, that is a challenging thing, and we don't have as many people as we need coming into the profession. So. Thank you so much, Doctor, for coming here. We're glad to have you in person here. My name is Haseen Fatima, and I'm Afghan-Canadian, from newcomer in, from Vancouver, BC. My question has two parts. The first part is this, that what was the most challenging period as a leader for you in this COVID time? The most challenging one or a, a memory that you have gone through was very difficult. And the second part, if you had to, if you and we all together had to go back again to have some kind of challenges and the COVID period again, a global issue again, what would you do differently? And in addition to this note, I also wanted to provide a little I, background. I need to make notes here, sorry. On <laughs> <laughs> addition to this note, I wanted to give a little background. I reflected back as I heard your speech. It, when it was COVID time, I remember myself that I had to go back from Bosnia to my country, Afghanistan, mm -hmm. and the school got shut down. Before going to Afghanistan, my worry was this, that COVID has been affected in Afghanistan as well, how my family is surviving. But when actually I went there, I saw that no one cares about COVID. And like everyone in this country is wearing masks, but in Afghanistan especially, no one knew. Like they didn't have masks, they didn't know about the education of uh, like COVID, uh, how to be prepared for it and also we had very big government. On the other hand, the biggest reason was this because I saw people were, were in war. They were fighting, they were worried, and anyway, they were being died. So they were being killed, but they were like fighting for the war. So on that note, why I reflected that, because I wanted to know that the poor countries or developing countries, that they didn't have facilities, they didn't have vaccine. What was the relationship of like that as a leader that you have gone through, the relationship of like thinking about uh, the connection, interconnection between Canada or other countries, and what was your evolution on that line? Thank you. <laughs> and, and world peace. Yeah, no, um, thank you for that. I think those are really, really important questions and things that I've thought a lot about. You know, I think, the challenge, some of the, the biggest challenges that came were very early on. Um, my experience in the, the SARS outbreak in Toronto in 2003 and what had happened then, um, and I had done, I've done a lot of work in my career on planning for pandemics. Mostly we think about influenza. So one of the most challenging things was when I knew that this was going to be affecting seniors and elders in our long-term care homes. And we had the first death. And I just remember having um, spent a lot of time trying to get people to pay attention that this was going to, we needed to take actions to try and protect those who were most at risk. And then we had that first death and it just was so, overwhelming and I don't know it was one of the it was a Saturday I was exhausted <laughs> we were doing a media briefing and I just got really overwhelmed with this feeling of the enormity of what was happening and recognizing that it wasn't just here 
um, that was one of the most challenging times. And, and I think one of the, there's two other periods of time that were really, really challenging. One was going back to school. Um, so we went back to school in June of 2020. And we learned, we did, a, we did um, very early on, I had tasked a group of, of my team to start looking at the, what we called unintended consequences of the actions that we were taking because we knew we had to take actions to stop this virus from spreading as much as we could, and we knew those would have consequences. So we're one of the few jurisdictions in the world that actually measured those consequences. We called it our unicorn project. <laughs> we had a little unicorn, that was our, our motto. But it's, it's the societal impacts of the pandemic. So we knew that the measures that we were taking would differentially impact some people in our communities. And we saw that, and what we heard across the board no matter what um, what ethnic group people belong to, what uh, what income level they belong to, having kids home from school was hard on everybody. It was hard on, on the children, it was hard on families, it was hard on communities. So we made um, one of our priorities, our top priorities, was keeping schools open safely. But that was not easy. And our political situation, where we have very strong unions who were negotiating for a new contract, and we had a very strong team that met daily for periods of time with the parent advisory groups, the superintendents, the principals, the teachers. And we came up with a plan to get schools open in June of 2020, and they stayed open throughout the rest of the pandemic. But that was a huge challenge huge challenge and it's still fraught because people have very strong ideas of what needed to be in place and and they weren't always borne out by evidence so that was one of the challenging things that i had the other challenging time was when the, in the summer of 2021 i don't even remember what year it is these days <laughs> so yeah and where we had lots of vaccine but the, the virus had changed and the, the Delta wave was coming through and we were starting to see people getting really sick. And especially if you weren't vaccinated, your chances of getting really sick with Delta and ending up in hospital um, and ICU or dying was very high. And so we were starting to see the impact of that, particularly in the northern part of this province where the health system essentially collapsed and we had to medevac. Uh, over close to 200 people in critical care to hospitals in the south, away from their families, away from their communities. So that was an incredibly difficult time. And we that's one of the times when I made the decision to put in place a vaccine passport or a vaccine requirement in certain settings, and particularly in healthcare settings. Um, so really, really challenging times. Uh, those those were if we could do things differently I think the first thing I would do differently is as a global community to have responded and supported China to contain this early on we missed that opportunity and by the summer of 2021 you know I was very hopeful having been through the SARS outbreak in Toronto that we could push this virus back into nature like we had with SARS-CoV-1 but um, by the time that summer, when it was still spreading and spreading in communities widely, that opportunity was missed. And we as a global community missed that opportunity. So I think, and I've done quite a bit of work with the WHO and we're working on, you know, how does, how do we have a, a, a global social contract to protect the globe when things like this arise again as they will. 
Um, and that talks to the whole issue of global inequity in vaccines. And in, yeah, if you're just trying to survive and, and there's internal conflicts that are going on and um, there are many other competing priorities and this is not the big one. Um, and, and that is the case in, in a number of countries around the world. And we didn't have vaccine equity. And we saw that from some of the largest countries particularly. Um, so there was a, a, a venue to try and um, increase access to vaccines, but we saw that everybody protected their own. And that's really difficult. It was for me as a decision maker, it was a very difficult thing to do because on one hand, I would love to have you know, once we had enough vaccine to protect those most at risk to be able to offer it. But at, at my level, my focus was really on how do we best get everybody here with access and how do we support other countries to be able to, to uh, have vaccine and, and the requirements of the initial vaccines that we had, the, the cold chain requirements were really like, impossible for many countries. You had to have ultra low temperature freezers. We now know that they, they are stable at, at much broader temperatures, so that makes it easier. But these are all really, really challenging things. So I'm hopeful that we can start a process through the WHO to, to have a, um, a stronger, more equitable way to put out um, PPE when there was global shortages of masks. And, and things that were important in healthcare. There's still um, countries, many countries in this world where less than half of healthcare workers have access to vaccine. So those are challenges that we have to address. And we try and do it our little bit here through, uh, through our relationship with the public health agency and WHO, but there's always more to do. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the wonderful speech Oops. today. Um, we received a question from... Uh, oh, there online. we go. Sorry. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's these bright lights. <laughs> <laughs> so we received a question from an uh, online session. So the question is, do the pre provincial chief medical officers communicate their advice and best practice practices to one another? Do you think those recommendations should be directly available to the public and not filtered through a provincial government? Thank you. Yeah, really good question. And do we? Absolutely. We have. Uh, we were meeting. Uh, we met by teleconference. Still do. We're down to twice a week now, but we were pretty much daily. We used to have, and it was a cast of thousands. So. You know, Dina Hinshaw from Alberta, one of my good friends, talk to regularly. <laughs> um, yeah, so across the country, we, we uh, the, the Chief Medical Officers of Health um, and uh, Dr. Teresa Tam, the, the uh, Chief, um, yeah, Provincial, uh, Public Health Officer for Canada. <laughs> She's a PHO and I'm a PHO, but I'm a Provincial Health Officer. Anyway, um, so yes, we, we absolutely shared uh, knowledge, information, we had, um, meetings where we all we all had a common approach, but we have to remember that our our systems here in Canada, because it's not one system, our systems in the health system, we provide advice around certain things. And I've said this a number of times: data and evidence never tells you what to do. It has to be put in the context of values and preferences and judgments. And in our system, our confederation, uh, federated government, 
it's the elected leaders who are there to help us make the decisions around values and preferences and judgments. So that decision of whether the cutoff is age 70 or age 65, that's a value judgment. And so what we have to do is put in uh, place, what I have to do is provide the best evidence. Let me give you an example of where where it sometimes is important, I believe, to have those conversations with with the government leaders who are elected to make those types of decisions. There's at one point um, uh, during Delta, and, oh, when Omicron started, and we needed to, there were certain types of activities that were highest risk, and we were seeing it spread really widely in a certain age group. And, and so um, I had proposed putting back um, numbers, uh, restrictions in, in gyms and, and fitness facilities to reduce the capacity in those settings because they're a higher risk setting. So we talked to the, uh, the organizations. So we had a table for the, um, the organizations that support gyms and fitness centers. And they said, if you put capacity limits, we'll go broke, we'll go bankrupt. We can't last with that. And then we talked to government and they said, well, if you close them down, we can provide you with economic support. So we made the decision. The decision was that it was better to close the gyms than put in capacity limits. And that was a very controversial decision. It's a simple one, it sounds like. But it was because we were able to provide economic support to keep those businesses running, because we know that that's important too in, in the broader scheme of health. So it, it is a balancing, and as you saw in this country anyway, and in the United States as well, in a confederation, <laughs> that consensus can be a challenge. And although we all have the same basic principles that we agreed upon, when that hits the political th um, decision makers, often different things came out of that. And some of that was based on context and some of that was based on, on a larger political agenda, sadly. Uh, hello. Oh, sorry. Hi, I'm Dylan. I'm from here from BC. I live in Vancouver. Um, first of all, I just wanted to say thank you so much. Me and my family every morning would watch you on the news. And <laughs> so it's a little bit intimidating talking to you right now. Um, and I would say, have I taught you nothing? <laughs> <laughs> um, my question is a bit more of a personal question. Um, you've spoken a lot about the policies that you've implemented in this talk and in general. And I know that it's not easy to have everybody come to one consensus and like, the public wasn't always in agreement with some of the policies, and I was wondering how you personally dealt with a lot of this backlash, as here in this room there's probably a lot of future government workers and future politicians, so, so. <laughs> yeah, I was just wondering how did you deal with that backlash? Yeah, that's a, thanks for that, because it, it has been challenging, and in challenging in ways that I never realized, and um, part of that was because I was a woman, and the the level of hatred and vitriol that came from a very small group of, of people who were amplified online was shocking to me, shocking in ways that uh, I, I couldn't believe people could act that way. And, you know, I'm still experiencing that. I have uh, one of my personal protection detail from the RCMP is with me here, and uh, I still have that. And there were times when I was afraid to be in my own house because people were coming by my house. They tried to break in. There was a hatred that was by email, um, letters to my office, things people mailed to me. It was um, scary, frightening, 
terrifying is the word. Um, and, it, and it continues, it's, it's settled down. So what I would say is um, talk about it. If you see something happening to one of your colleagues, one of your friends, speak out. Don't be afraid to call people out when they're saying things that are hurtful and unkind. And if you see it online, um, well, get out of those social media. <laughs> but what we saw was a real proliferation. And what you see online is a, is a bit of a, uh, an echo chamber. And people feel that that's okay. And there's this um, ability, uh, that people who uh, try and dehumanize you um, you're a Nazi, you know, there is the, this sort of thing, so therefore you're not human, therefore it's okay for me to send hatred to you or to threaten to kill you. And that's not okay. It's not okay anywhere. And we all have to speak up about this and talk about this. And that's one of the things I've learned. I've also learned that, that those very small voices or small number of voices can sound very loud. Um, and we all have a responsibility to, to drown them out with the right thing, with kindness. And the other thing that I've learned, and I, I learned from a, a First Nations elder, my friend's father, who, when I was very angry about things and upset and wanting to call something out, and he said, you know, our teachings are to always take the high road. It's quiet up there. There's not many people there. And when you run into them, you'll have a good conversation. So I hold that in my heart a lot. And I realize that a lot of uh, what people, uh, most people who are reacting, who are frustrated or angry, they're afraid and they're anxious. And that's one way of responding to, to not knowing and not knowing what to do. And those are things that we can deal with. We can give people tools to help them with the anxiety and the fear and the not knowing. Um, we can help people remember that we do know how to get through respiratory season, that we can trust each other to do the right thing, that we are, for the most part, good, and the good part of people comes out, and to remind us of that. So uh, that's the things that I, I keep with me. Sometimes it's more, it's easier than others, and the other things I, I, I drag these guys out, we go running quite a lot, <laughs> that's why they help me <laughs> cope. Um, so I think it, it is really important for us to open our eyes to that and not let that go unnoticed when there's comments or when there's things that are, are, are hurtful to others. Um, hello, uh, I'm Mia, I'm from Germany. And uh, so present time is often described as kind of post-COVID. And I was wondering if you think that we can kind of close this chapter on COVID now and if we can move on, or if you think that there are still some challenges that are gonna approach us in the future. Yeah, you know what, I, I call it as emerging. We're, we're not post-COVID in any way. COVID's with us, this virus is with us, the illness is with us, and it's going to be with us for some time until we, you know, it may hopefully oscillate <laughs> to a, a form that is less and less virulent and becomes more like some of the other coronaviruses that circulate that uh, cause a, a mild cold illness in most people or until we find a really good vaccine, a next generation vaccine that gives us good protection against severe illness. So COVID is with us. The pandemic, I believe, we're emerging from. 
Um, I think we need to get through this respiratory season, and uh, I mean, this last few weeks has been very stressful because we've we've seen other illnesses that are affecting particularly young people and children. And influenza A is what's causing most of the, the severe illness we're seeing right now here in BC, uh, RSV and other parts of the country. So these are things that we haven't seen for a couple of years because when you're not traveling the globe and we're not getting together in larger groups, it doesn't spread as much. So um, this is our challenge and it's a, it's a pandemic hangover challenge, essentially. I do believe that once we get to, and I'll sort of jokingly say, once we get to Easter, once we get through this respiratory season, and I've said that, I, I, it's a, an in-joke with my team because in 2020, this all started in, in March, and I said, okay, we just need to make it to Easter. And then we needed to make it to Easter of 2021, then to Easter of 2022. But I think this Easter, we'll be through the pandemic phase of it. Um, and I think you know the WHO still calls it a, a public health event of international concern. I think we will stop um, the public health emergency that is declared around that we still have in place around the pandemic. But COVID is with us and SARS-CoV-2 is with us and we're just going to have to learn how best to live with it in the future. Um, we got another question from online. So the question is, in Mexico, we had schools closed until the end of 2021, and in some high school until August 20, 2022. There has been an increase in anxiety, depression, and suicidal attempts in, the, in teenagers. How has Canada uh, dealt with the psychological problems? Thank you. Yeah, you know, one of the groups that I believe has really, and, and that we've tried to pay attention to are young people like you. If we think about it, you know, you miss all these important transitions in life, graduation from high school, starting a program like this, going to university. For many young people in my life, their first year of university was sitting in a dorm room by themselves doing classes online. We know that learning is much more than just doing classes, and I don't need to say that in this room, that it's about the social connections, about meeting people who think differently than you and look differently than you and have different ideas, and that's what expands our, our lives and, and um, keeps us interested in finding our tribe and the things that we're passionate about in life. We also know that when schools are closed, for some families, some children, school is the only safe place they have and that they suffer more. So we, that's why I mentioned, you know, one of our main focus after the first phase of the pandemic was to find a safe way to keep schools open to support young people. The other thing that we know is that those jobs that we do when we're young, like working at the ski hill or the restaurant or pubs, those were mostly not available for people for a long period of time. And, and that's hard on young people when you're trying to find something to keep you going and become independent financially. So all of those have led to um, quite dramatic increases in anxiety. And what we've tried to do is how do we build resilience in communities? So getting schools back was one thing, but we also put mental health counselors in every school and had programs that helped people adjust. And we, we helped build up that ability to be um, to have stronger connections within the schools if we needed to close down again so that teaching 
could happen. Um, same in universities, and that was one of our big challenges here in BC, where all across the country, around the world, uh, where universities, <laughs> faculty were quite happy not to teach in person, I found a lot of them. Um, thankfully, many of them are much happier being back in the classroom setting. And, and we had a whole you know, year of, a year and a half here of research, important research that young people do that was postponed and delayed, and that's gonna set back um, a lot of our understanding of, of important concepts for a long time. So we tried very hard to have universities go back full time, and most did in this province. Uh, I also talked about our unintended consequences program. So one of the things that we did measure was um, mental illness, mental health issues, and we found that absolutely there was a high level of anxiety, and there was, um, but there w and it wasn't sustained. Once things started to get back into more of, of uh, being able to do things in person and, and more options, most of that was, was okay. And, and yes, there was depression. The one thing that was statistically elevated and continues is eating disorders in, in young people, particularly young girls, but also um, LGBTQ people who identify as trans, um, so it was, and, and, in, and boys, but particularly in LGBTQ plus and girls. And that's something that we need to address. And I think a lot of it has to do, I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but we think it has to do with um, images online. And because so many people were doing things online, that became the focus for many people. So that's something we're, we're working on as well. Um, we here in, in BC, we have a Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions um, that just got a new minister last week, so this is an area that we need to put a lot of attention and focus into, and I have been encouraging government to, to look at ways of developing um, programs, special programs for young people who suffered so much in terms of their social connections and development and opportunities for this last few years, so I'm hoping that we'll get something from that as too. But I, I think the things that we learned about how do we cope when we are in a crisis is that resiliency is, some of it is, is me and how, you know, my background and where I come from and how I think through things and the things that I do. But much of our resilience comes from our community and where, you know, who we're with. And that's just why this is such an important community for all of you to help you build your resilience to get through things like this. Because these are going to happen again. And that's why I focus a lot on kindness and compassion and recognizing the suffering in each other because that's, that's how we build those bonds that help us get through the next crises that's going to come. Dr. Henry, <clears throat> this is not a question, but I wanted to take the opportunity to thank you in person. Um, in a time where we were kind of suffering in silence, everyone, everyone was suffering and we needed a voice of wisdom and a voice of, of, of kindness, and you were that voice. And I want to thank you on behalf of my family, my community, this community, we were suffering as well, but when we turned on the YouTube video and we saw your presence there and we listened to your voice and your voice even breaking because we, we knew that you were actually feeling it. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
going to say you can turn the lights down so you don't see me getting emotional. Um, <laughs> first of all, thank you very much for coming here and speaking. I'm from Denmark. Um, I was wondering, uh, since like due to the climate crisis, that we can see that um, it's likely that more diseases will arise. Um, I was thinking if there's like a high awareness of this in the like in the um, healthcare sector, and how do you think we can plan for this like locally and internationally? Yeah. Well, there's been two big conferences recently and just talking about that, including one in Montreal right now, COP15, about biodiversity. In terms of awareness, absolutely. This is something that, that I think, you know, those moments of silence and hearing birds and seeing animals and things really open some people's eyes to a concept that they may not have paid a lot of attention to in our busy world. Um, so, in terms of public health and my community, we were just talking today about some of our priorities around, around global health or planetary health. And I think one of the things that has struck me in my learning journey is, is and I talked about this in, in the, my opening remarks about, um, about First Nations and the First Nations um, Métis and Inuit relationship with the land, but particularly First Nations and Inuit relationship with the land and how we can learn that it's the you know, water and land are integral. There are relations, they're, they're part of how we are sustaining. So it, it, we have been working in the, the health sector and public health of how do we, um, how do we learn to do that in, in all of the work that we do? So that's what we're trying to do within my sphere of influence. Um, and I think in this province, in this country, we're struggling about how to, how to make that across the board and, and not, I mean, I think there's trade-offs that we need to recognize. If we're going to go uh, um, from a, um, away from fossil fuels, then we have to accept that we'll need to do some mining because we need elements to help um, replace fossil fuels as energy sources. So these are things, big concepts that we're still working through from a health perspective. Um, we need to look at adaptability and we need to recognize, and as I just said, you know, the next crisis is going to come because that human nature interface means that there are things that are gonna happen faster. Right now we have uh, avian influenza outbreaks, the largest number of outbreaks that we've had ever in Canada, across North America, across parts of Europe with a, an H5N1 strain that thankfully right now doesn't make humans very sick but it's making a lot of turkeys and <laughs> chickens very sick in our Fraser Valley. Um, and it's looking like it might stay. And that is purely um, interfaces with climate change, uh, with migratory patterns that have changed. We never used to see migratory waterfowl in this part of the country at this time of year, but now we do. So yeah, I think these are, these are, the, these are the, the challenges you're going to inherit. <laughs> so our chance is to help um, find some solutions and put us on the right path. But in healthcare, in public health in particular, we're paying a lot of attention to that. Thank you. I wanna echo my colleagues' gratitude for, for your leadership. Um, and I wanted to ask you a question as a leader and as a human being, 
you talked about, um, I love your quote about uh, that you attributed to, to the elders of take the high road, there aren't so many folks up there. And I, my sense of your leadership in the last three years has been that you called so many of us to the high road. And as a person and as a leader, I just would love to hear your reflections on choices, values, sneaky tricks. <laughs> like, how did you, you really brought the province along. Like people really stepped up to wearing a mask, even though it's super annoying and uncomfortable, on behalf of others. Like we really did step up to that high road and I think so much of it was your leadership. Well, thank you for that. You know, I really appreciate that. I think I've learned from from working on Ebola, working on um, SARS in Toronto, that when when a community's in crisis, what you need to do is bring people together. And if you come out with the punitive approaches, as we've seen happen in well China and other places, um, then there's only you can only go down from there. So really, I, I believe that if you tell people what you need them to do, you tell them why it's important to do that, and you give people the means, and I think that was the part that's often missing, is you give people the means to do it. So it was really challenging when masks weren't widely available. And so, you know, the messaging around how important it was for um, masks and respirators to be available in the healthcare settings, that's where we really needed them. And then bringing people along about why it made a difference as we learn more. And, and I guess it's Maya Angelou who says, you know, do the best you can with what you know, and when you know more, do better. And so trying to, to think about that. But I actually, I'm, I'm quite proud of, you know, the fact that the Premier and the Minister of Health have all used the words love in talking to people about what we were going through. Um, and, and that, I think, came from us um, working together along this, and you know, people ask me many times, "How did I come up with the, the be kind, be calm?" And I have my notes. I'm I'm not somebody who types things out. I scribble notes, and and I, I had the notes for that day. Um, this was before I had the communications person to help me <laughs> organize my thoughts, and I, I had the word kindness in there because it's something that had stuck with me about particularly um, the Ebola outbreak that I was involved in, in in northern Uganda, and there's somebody, where's my Ugandan friend? <laughs> um, but it's, uh, it, you know, the fact that it, when people are in crises and anxious and afraid, that you really have to, to respond in kind. And kindness, kind comes from uh, the root of the word kin, that we are together, we are connected. And when you're kindness, it means, um, and the calmness comes from, well, people used to say to me that, you know, in a crisis, I have a very calm voice and I calm people down. But it really, it was thinking, well, calm means taking that step back and recognizing you don't always know everybody's story. And they may be reacting in anger because of what they've been through before, what, because they're concerned about what's going to happen to their grandmother or their child. And that's where compassion comes in. And compassion is about recognizing that we're all suffering in different ways. And if we do that, if we're kind and recognize that we're connected and that we're compassionate with each other, then that's the thing that's going to keep us safe, both individually but collectively. So 
I think it was just saying it enough that it sort of spilled over to some of the other people too. But I, I do believe it, and I, and I think we see that for the most part. It's been really hard now. I think we're in a phase of collective forgetting. We want to forget it. We want to, and that's common when we've been through a trauma. You want to put it behind you and, and move on. But I, I just really want people to remember those moments of kindness where somebody helped you out and do that. Remember to do that to the next person when you're faced with somebody who's angry or upset or afraid. Hello, my name is Charlotte and I'm from Norway. So you mentioned previously that you've been dealing with an overdose crisis. And uh, I've been getting advertisements online uh, about uh, destigmatizing substance users, which is considered a very, very radical statement in my country. So uh, I wonder what do you consider the most significant measures you've done to prevent overdoses in BC. And I also wonder which, uh, like which policies you would like to be set in place to deal with this crisis. Sure, no, thank you for that. And it, this is something that um, my predecessor, when I was the uh, um, Deputy Provincial Health Officer, Dr. Perry Kendall, and I declared a, a public health emergency, the first public health emergency in British Columbia under the Public Health Act, because that allowed us to, to do things like connect and link data, get data from the coroner's office, put it together with health data to try and better understand who was being affected. But I think first and foremost, my job when we started that was to put a human face on this. So it's not drug addicts, it's not those people, it's people and it's our people and it's people who use drugs. So putting the people first is incredibly important because we all are, are touched by this. We may not recognize it, but it's, you know, we're seeing this in this province and across the country. And one of the reasons that we are, uh, that we highlight is being, you know, there's so much uh, here in BC, the numbers are the greatest, but part of that is because we are looking for it and we are talking to people. We are monitoring and measuring it in ways that other parts of this country aren't. So putting people first, understanding that it's stigma and shame that keeps people from talking about their drug use. And that means that they're doing it alone. And that means they're dying alone right now. So things were getting better marginally. Um, we still know that about 80% of the people who've died and continue to die from the toxic drug supply in this province are men. But of the 20% who are women, overwhelmingly they're First Nations women. So why is that? And it harkens back to the colonial practices, residential schools, intergenerational trauma. And when women are affected, communities are affected. So those are the things, these are the people in our lives. It's our brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in many cases, aunties, uncles, the real people. And that's one of the first things that we've recognized. And, and there's a number of things that we put in place. One of the biggest tragedies, I believe, in this pandemic has been the measures that we put in place in many communities meant that shelters couldn't hold as many people because it would be a risk. 
And that made uh, it, the life of people who were dependent on those services even that much more difficult. And the part of the lack of global travel meant that some of the uh, drugs that were coming into the country were no longer able to get into the country and they started producing them internally. We now have a whole, whole grown, homegrown um, production of, of carfentanil and other um, opioid analogs that are cut with a whole bunch of things and so it's become more and more toxic. So the two things, there are many things that we need to have in place. Everything from harm reduction programs and we've had naloxone now that's widely available. I hope everybody in this room knows how to use naloxone. That we have um, overdose prevention services that are available in many communities, but we need to do more. And so I wrote a report in 2018 about decriminalization of people who use drugs as a way to get people who are um, functioning, living at home, using drugs, out of the criminal justice system. Because that shame that keeps them from talking to their family or friends or seeking help in our healthcare se se system, that stigma that is associated with it is because you're a criminal and so you just shouldn't do it. So we've now got, um, uh, starting in January, we're going to have decriminalization of people who have a small amount of drugs for their own use. They won't be charged criminally under the Federal um, Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. So that's a really important first step that I hope will help address some of the stigma uh, and allow people to, to reach out for assistance, for connection, for help. The other thing that we're working on is a vision of, of how we can give people the medications, the drugs they need for people who have substance use addictions um, so they're not getting it from the toxic drug supply. So that's the safer supply initiatives. So yeah, these are strange words. <laughs> they're, they're scary for lots of people. They think, they think of othering, <laughs> that it's just those people and it's not my family, it's not my community, it's not people I know. But that's not the, the case and we know that here in BC. And so it is about talking about people and talking about how do we support people um, who are at different points in their journey of using drugs. And you know, we always say that the, the, keeping people alive is the first step and connection. And we learned so much about connection. When you connect with somebody and you know, I've talked with people at these overdose prevention sites when they first arose and, and people said, this is the first time somebody has talked to me like I'm a real person. When I go into the healthcare system, I'm shunned, I'm told I'm nothing, They're, they wanna take my children away, I'm gonna lose my job, I'm gonna lose my, I can't rent a place because I have a criminal record. But talking about people, meeting them where they're at, and not leaving them there, <laughs> but finding ways to, to help them um, come along to a better place and when they're ready, um, having options for recovery there for them. That's a big challenge and goes back to the very first question where we don't have um, a very, we have a very fragmented system for supporting people who have substance use issues. And so we need a lot of work to do on that too. Dr. Hi, Dr. Henry. My name's Marisa Collins and I'm the college physician. Uh, most of what uh, care I provide is as part of mental health here at Pearson. And uh, 
not just you with technology, but I lost my quote, so I'll have to paraphrase it. So before my question, I just wanted to uh, start with a very brief preamble. Something I read a couple of days ago was this kind of apocryphal story of someone asking the Dalai Lama, um, what can I do? Because I have no more compassion for myself. Uh, I really need help. And the Dalai Lama's answer was, serve others. So you've talked a lot about happiness and kindness. And I sometimes lapse into a bit of science when I speak to my patients about why these micro doses of kindness really help us. And I hope I'm not putting you on the spot. I'm sure I'm not. Perhaps you could speak a little bit about the science of how small acts of kindness. I opened the door for someone today, so I was giving something, but they gave the most sincere thank you in response, so they were giving back. So can you speak about how those small kindnesses that we share with each other, that can be really tiny, they don't mean helping someone when they're having a difficulty, they just mean smiling or saying thank you or whatever. Can you speak about the science behind that? Because we know there is good science as to why it helps us and it helps others. Yeah, how long do we have? <laughs> Obviously, this is something that I, um, I have learned a lot about uh, prior to the pandemic, but certainly during the pandemic. And, and I'm somebody, I, I did a, uh, mindfulness in medicine is something that um, I spent a lot of time looking into over the num last number of years. And there is good science that talks about how when we are giving to others, especially, especially, and almost perhaps importantly, without the expectation of getting something back. So making an anonymous donation actually gives us more feelings of love and gratitude and um, fulfillment than giving a donation and having being recognized for it. So those are things that I guess is part of our human nature, that we're wired to be able to, to, to give love and to give, oh, um, to be kind to others, and that fulfills us in ways that we may not even realize. And I would encourage everybody to, to look at, uh, there's some great work, John Kabat-Zinn is probably one of the people who's written a lot about it and has put the science together in a way that's quite accessible. Um, and, you know, it's not religious, although for some people, religion can serve that purpose for them. Um, but it is something that is about um, recognizing each other as humans, again. And, and I, I won't go on about it, but I, I do think meditation is really helpful, recognizing our, our mind and the stories we tell ourselves and our narrative. And, and that can be what increases our suffering because we think things and we overthink things and we, uh, we cause ourselves to suffer um, more so than the actual suffering that's out there sometimes. And, and being able to turn off those narratives or at least recognize them when they come up, that's something that's, that happens to me a lot at two in the morning. So <laughs> I, I get up and I, I write things down and have warm milk and honey. But, um, 
but we all do that. We all have these narratives. So I, I guess I would just say, you know, I also think of people like Mother Teresa who said there's no great deeds, just small deeds done with great love, and we can all do those. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, due to some time constraints, that was the last question. But I would <laughs> like to take this opportunity to thank Dr. Henry for coming here, thank your team for accepting to come here and doing this wonderful presentation. I'd also like to thank the tech team for all their work, and I'd like to thank admin as well for allowing us to have this beautiful event. If you would like to learn more about what we do at Pearson, visit our website at www.pearsoncollege.ca. You can also subscribe to Pearson eNews and keep an eye on our social media pages for the latest updates.